the portal between the module you're in and the next module swishes open and through the circular portal you see into the hydroponic farm module uh, and something is moving there. It's a little lower than a human, but larger, and it's bumping into the plastic shelves, which in half G are creating floating blobs of water that are slowly moving toward the floor due to the, the pseudogravity. And then as it turns, you can smell it before you see it actually. It reeks of ammonia, and you instantly all click your helmets back in, and the clean air is begins to scrub it out. And the thing that's looking at you looks a bit like a Dungeness crab if it was also sort of a Harvestman spider uh, and also at a rave and also had some computer equipment strapped to it. It's sort of almost like hard to decipher. It doesn't have a clear head. Um, it has multiple branching legs. It turns to you and then one of those little technical bits, it looks like almost like a little Bluetooth speaker, but made out of like gray um, exo crust. It's like a living, it's a like grown in this place on its sort of shoulder in quotation marks. It blares at you in perfect spins, the language you speak. And it says in this very neutral kind of robotic tone, hello, we are looking for help acquiring an item. Welcome to Making a Monster. This is Amigo. And it's just one of the super weird, super future encounters in Stillfleet, the sci-fi RPG by Wythe Marshall. It's the system that helped this show explain the pyramid of villainy during the GM edition episode on Float City with Mike Regnetta and Taylor Moore. At the time, Stillfleet was still in playtesting, but now the game is a full core rulebook in the final hours of its Kickstarter campaign to become a full-color, hardback reality. I'm pleased and honored to introduce you to a game that will throw you headfirst into the depths of cosmic thought and to its creator. Hi, I'm Wythe Marshall. I'm a writer and game designer. I'm creating a game called Stillfleet. It's a sci-fi tabletop role-playing game set in the far future. It's about the politics of work. So your characters are void miners. They work for a company that goes out in space and takes stuff from dead civilizations and from aliens and from current other civilizations. And you get to choose whether you want to do that or you want to push back. And then my day job, I'm a social scientist. I'm an anthropologist of food and agriculture, but focused again on tech in the future and big political economic questions. So I think there is, there's some through line between far future game stuff and the present of the food system. Wife, I want to tell you that Stillfleet is perhaps responsible for one of the most fulfilling listening experiences I have ever had <laughs> in the person of the Float City arc from Mike and the team at Fun City. I agree. I, I think they just really knocked out of the park. And um, I can only take very small credit for, you know, that's the game system <laughs> I created. But they, they really did such an amazing job with that story. You know, I think endings are really hard. And I think they just nailed the ending. And that really makes such a difference. The level of thought and like emotion put into, you know, kind of year long sci-fi arc. And you have a podcast called Fields, right? The latest episode that I saw was from April. Is that project still running? Yes. Um, thanks for, for shouting that out. Yeah, my friend Melissa Metric, who is the farmer at NYU. I work at NYU as a researcher in the business school about the future of farming and public-private partnerships. Um, she and I have a podcast called Fields, the Unfinished Story of uh, Urban Agriculture on Heritage Radio Network because we both focus on urban agriculture. So she, as a farmer herself and myself as a social scientist, as a, as a researcher. Uh, and we interview people who are engaged in all kinds of aspects of um, urban agriculture. We <laughs> finished the second season at the start of the summer and we're taping the third season now. So sometime in the fall that will start. So there, there definitely will be a third season of Fields. We're working on it. 
I also wanted to bring it up because it reflects this long history that you have of working in this space and thinking about sort of the core ideas that went into building Stillfleet. I understand this is a project you've been working on for about 15 years. Is that true? I looked and found the oldest record of this kind of setting is like a homebrew game for like an OSR campaign. Uh, it was like 2011. But certainly before that, I was running games and thinking about game design, um, but a lot less seriously in terms of kind of one stake in the ground, you know, setting. Um, and even then in, in 2011, it certainly wasn't like, oh, I'm going to write a book per se. It was like, no, I want to make a big capacious campaign setting for my friends. And I have lots of ideas about the future and climate. So let me sort of foreground those and make it more sort of political and about climate disruption and, tech, you know, the politics of technology is, is tech good or bad or sort of have a lot of wacky, uh, you know, AI and, and just kind of go, go fun. And then 2017 is when it got much more serious as like, okay, I'm writing a book. I know, you know, I sort of have all of the, the elements in place by then. Still Fleet has been described to me as a super future setting because you are not concerned with small questions and you've created this game that is capable of taking very, very big swings. Is that an accurate descriptor? And what does super future mean in the context of Still Fleet's world? That is, I think, an apt term because uh, it's set not in the near future. It's set in the very far future on purpose, just picking kind of an arbitrary number where continents would be different. But, you know, the solar system would still be here. So if you wanted to sort of visit Earth, not that it's even set on Earth per se, but, you know, that you could sort of find um, ways back to some ancient past, but it would be so buried and changed that, that most people would have no relation to anything in, in 2022, right? But the idea of the super future in some ways is to provide um, a fictional, a sort of safe, fun, fictional place where I can then model things that are happening today. But they can be so different and, and I can always say, oh, it's 100 million years in the future. And so it's not one to one. It's not making fun of any specific thing or forcing people to engage in any specific kind of political discussion about 2022. It's providing a fun, you know, RPG environment for games. But you can simulate, OK, you work for a company. The company does things you don't agree with. What are you going to do about it? You're working for money, but it's like the values of things are very arbitrary. And actually, in the world of the game, you um, you don't have to pay for food or lodging. So it actually is a weird sort of like, wait, is this post-scarcity? What is the vibe? Um, and I think it, it sort of gets to like, why would you go, quote unquote, adventure and the politics <laughs> of that? So for the company, they're saying, go steal this ancient tech from aliens or whatever. We're, we're trying to kind of amass. There have been many civilizations that have come and gone. That's the big trope, right? Is over 100 million years, many advanced civilizations rise and fall. It's implied that if you get faster than light travel, generally you flame out in a civil war and or other advanced species destroy you for reasons. And there may also be time <laughs> travel because, again, if you could move faster than light, you could time travel. So, you know, it, that's not a huge part of the game, but it's sort of an implied. Maybe events are being sort of sculpted by actors in the future to achieve a certain outcome or change a certain outcome. And you're swept along in this this uh, environment. And really, again, that is just a um, it's like an engine. You know, it's a way to model it's more to me, more interesting, specific interactions where it's like, what do you do when you go to a world that is um, facing kind of environmental crisis? What do you do when you're asked to do something you don't agree with morally? Uh, what do you do when you encounter others, you know, aliens, quote unquote, but um, even though they look different, they might, they might not be like, quote unquote, evil, or like, what would it mean for them to be evil? You know, they might just have a very different way of thinking. And so the game, um, you know, it has crunchy, like you can fight them, but you also have lots of powers where you can get out of fights. And so I think that ties in with this idea of exploring all the stuff that might have happened over millions of years um, come and gone. So there's advanced tech, there's uh, all kinds of 
of organisms and even humans being still around. I mean, the, the, again, it's implied that they are uh, have been recreated. You know, they've been modeled on ancient humans, but they're not like direct descendants. Um, and and I think that again, it allows people to ha- both like do things that feel familiar and explore sort of the things I find interesting about um, the near future. But by making it so far future, super future, um, I think they have a little more creative license. I feel like that anyway when I'm playing the game or running the game. Um, and I, I think other people do too. It's so far in the future that you don't have to feel like you're sort of stuck responding to um, things happening right now in our lived experience that we you know, have anxieties about um, or maybe are excited about either way. And um, and those games can be fun too, for sure. Like near future settings, you know, more quote unquote cyberpunk settings. Um, this one is trying to do something a little different on purpose. Um, and maybe we'll do a different game, you know, set a hundred years from now or whatever, <laughs> right, uh, yeah. instead of a hundred million um, next. But you know what I mean? For now, it's we're firmly in the super future. In the same way that we talk about board games as engine building or deck building or push your luck or so on, there are a couple of like standard descriptors that apply to. TTRPG systems, as in dice pools or a D20 system. How do you generally talk about the mechanics of Still Fleet? And then um, what would the experience be like as a player if we were uh, putting this together and getting started? Yeah, um, it's meant to be very simple. So it's meant to be, in a way, Rules Light, it came out of um, my interest in the sort of old school renaissance um, and trying to forge my own system that was very different from D20 systems, which I had run my whole life and was just really dissatisfied with by about, say, 2015. I was really looking for other <laughs> mechanics. And I'd played a lot of D10 systems, um, D100, and certainly now 2D6 has become you know the vogue. But I, I really, none of it was doing what I wanted in terms of um, ranges. And so it was very simple. You know, in, in conversations uh, with my, my friend Paul Gray, who's a really amazing mathematician and, and teacher, you know, I had this thought, well, what if the scores just were dice? Like, we keep talking about these secondary mechanics, you know, if you have a, a score from whatever, three to 18, you get a plus or minus. If you have, uh, you know, you are adding plus one or, you know, plus three or whatever in a uh, apocalypse game. What if you just simplified it and you had different dice and you're just trying to beat the other person? If you initiate the action, then you win the tie. And so usually there's a contest and a being you're rolling against, whether it's another PC or more likely, you know, the GM has some die determined by how good the thing is that you're, you're, fighting against um, at, at that task, and you have your die. Um, and, and we have a small number of scores. We have five scores. So combat, movement, reason, will, and charm. They're different die types. You assign them when you make your character. doesn't take very long. Uh, and then you might have pluses. You know, you might have a... There's sort of species bonuses. So if you're some robot that's very fast, you might have like a plus one to movement. So you roll your die at, at one. I mean, it's not a huge deal. And that felt really fun. And we also set a neutral value. So a lot of times it became simpler to not roll against the GM. The GM's uh, number is just six. You're trying to get a six or higher, then you succeed. So for example, I say, oh, I, I look around. Okay, well, you roll will to perceive. Perceive falls under will. And if you get a six or higher, um, you find something interesting. The GM has to kind of reveal a clue, a secret. If you don't, then the GM can give you a general description, but doesn't really tell you sort of deeper what's going on. And, uh, and your will die might be a D6 if you're a you know regular Joe. A D8, if you're sort of trained in like sleuthing, uh, you know, a D10, if you're really quite good and a D12 would be like superhuman and everyone starts off with, you know, one D12 stat, one D10, one D8 and two D6s. So you assign those um, different classes. You'd probably want to be more fighty if you were the still rider, the sort of space marine class. You'd probably want a higher combat score because your job is to hurt things um, for the company, right? So that's that would make sense that you would be trained in that. You'd be super good at that. Uh, and then your health is determined by adding the maximum value of your combat and movement. So that's just a number from 12 to whatever, 22. Um, 
and that goes up or down. You know, if you get hurt, it goes down. If it goes to zero, you're prone. And if you get attacked while you're prone, you die. Prone meaning like you can't act. Um, so that's very basic. The other thing we added over time, we added this meta mechanic. You have a pool of grit and your powers generally cost grit. So the class powers all cost grit. Your grit's determined by class. It's two scores added together, your max values. So again, probably like from 14 to 22 to start. And it goes down when you use powers. Well, that's all pretty simple. Other games have that. You know, you spend your effort points, whatever, to do magic or whatever you're doing. In this right. game, you Spell can also burn... being a, a rough uh, equivalent from, from the D&D world. Oh, sure. But, you know, grit is not that in that it's not, not everyone's casting spells. But you have powers that cost points. And um, the core thing is that you can boost. So you can burn three grit or six grit or nine grit, which could be a lot. Nine grit is like probably half your starting grit for many people. Um, j- just under half um, to get a plus three, a plus six or a plus nine on any roll. So anytime you're rolling to do anything other than recover grit, obviously, uh, you can burn grit and increase your chances, but you still fail if you roll a one. You always fail if you roll a one. So it adds this kind of crazy gambling mechanic where you're like, I burn nine grit, like screw it. Um, but it's really <laughs> fun. It, in practice, it just makes those big moments. I, I think what it does for me is it, it added something that was a little bit missing, which was like the nat 20 moment in D&D where you're like, yes. I got a natural 20. I, I totally killed a monster. So this is the same thing. You're like, I burn nine grit. Like that's so much of my effort. Yeah. It's supposed to represent like, you know, your energy, your, your attention, your ability to like succeed. You know, I don't know about you, but like when I start the day, I can only write so many really good emails or <laughs> yeah. pages or whatever. And then by like the afternoon, I'm like, I, I need a break, you know? Um, so it's just meant to represent that very abstractly. And it's, it's fast. Again, it's simple to learn. Um, it's not like a huge headache because you're again, adding a small number. So it's, it's not like you have to do a lot of math. Um, so yeah. I'll shut up about it, but that, those are the two well, core I, components. I do want to tell you that like that yin and yang that you've produced, that push and pull of, of uh, randomness in the person of the die and then choice in the form of the grit pool are so central like that is the heart and soul of what makes a ttrpg a ttrpg and you're right when you burn grit and move it from a, a, a random outcome to one over which i have decided to invest my maximum effort and cause a certain outcome that slaps to be honest <laughs> like that feels good and it's something that uh, i don't see in a lot of systems so i, I really appreciated that about the game Let's talk about some of the specific antagonists in Stillfleet. In particular, I want to talk about what you have called Cthulicates. I've not heard the name of Lovecraft's mythos used in that particular way before as, as an adjective with that construction. Uh, and it feels at once familiar and different, which sounds to me and looks to me like what you are doing um, with the uh, Cthulhu mythos. So Stillfleet being a super future game and accessing all of the rich history of science fiction, how does that compare in your mind to cosmic horror? And why did you make the choice to um, make them so integral with each other? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fair question. And I think some people push back just because obviously of the, the legacy of Lovecraft himself. Um, right. But if you look at, to me, the legacy of science fiction and the impact Lovecraft had on science fiction, um, and really more the, the, the tradition of what I, I call science horror, people call it cosmic horror. Um, I think it's, it, it's, um, understudied in science fiction studies. So it's almost like people think that, you know, science fiction takes off from Jules Verne or whatever in this hard sci-fi standpoint. And I think the pulp influence, the weird cosmic influence that taps into the things Americans really like, you know, go big or go home, spiritual sort of, you know, cosmism, this sort of religious, uh, religiosity. 
um, that, that Lovecraft really nails in the, the classic stories um, where at some point, if you did encounter an alien who was the size of a planet, I mean, that would effectively be God, right? And you could imagine cults springing up and all these things. Um, if you, if you, there are beings that can move in and out of our, our dimensions. I mean, I think some of the horror, the awe, the terror, the horror all being intermixed in those moments of encounter um, feel a lot truer than a lot of the classic, quote unquote, classic sci-fi that is taught in sort of intro uh, or, you know, would be collected in an anthology of like the greatest 25 science fiction stories up to a certain right. point. I think now it's I've changing because now those, again, I think, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's more people reading and writing. So now those are getting much better. You'd see, you know, you'd see amazing stories by, you know, you can imagine like a Ted Chang story that's totally mind blowing that would now be in an anthology that wouldn't have been in, when I was a little kid, right in the 80s, 90s. So all I'm saying is, um, I think, you know, putting Lovecraft's um, personal life aside in a sense, um, which I don't, you know, I, I know you can't do entirely, but I think he was on to something as well. I'm saying he had some good ideas about, okay, there's a kind of scale at which we can imagine from a hard science fictional standpoint, he, you know, was an obsessive reader of science news. If you just extrapolate, okay, there's some being that's evolved that can live thousands of years and it's the size of a mountain or whatever, that would have a very different reality for people kind of encountering it, uh, interacting with it in some way. And it, and it does kind of push science fiction into this, um, realm of the spiritual uh, or you know the cosmic for for sense of scale and i think that a game set so far in the future that's meant to um really play with scale and have the ability for players to go down rabbit holes with clank technology so it's low tech enough where like having a pistol that works is kind of a big deal um but also <laughs> right there's advanced aliens there's advanced immortal godlike aliens so it's like you know that that scale is just this powers of 10 thing where you can zoom in and you have a whole scramble on a desert planet where you need to find bullets for one pistol and you need a canteen <laughs> full of water you could also have a game about a, a, you know a cthulhu kit and not to again you know but just to reference fun city because it's you know it exists um i think that's something uh the float city arc of fun city did really well as they introduced you know one very powerful entity and then kind of you didn't realize it at first necessarily how much of the the sort of story was about this entity's just vast power and knowledge and what it wanted and how alien its wants were. Um, and, and it leads to a really epic ending, obviously, um, which so not to spoil too much, but that's like that's kind of, I think, um, getting at some of these ideas that are incipient in um, certainly not not only Lovecraft, but I think because his story, some of those stories nail it so well, it's just easy. It's a reference point where many people reading them growing up say aha there's something here that's quite different from the sort of um some of the other themes explored and sort of other other subgenres of sf so um that was just a starting place that has influenced me and i think the response to it so i'll just add you then you have writers like victor laval um you could also look at like lovecraft country um you know pym which is playing around with um poe but but you know matt johnson's work um you you have these writers where uh they're taking the mythos and they're intentionally kind of playing with elements of it um, because of their their own interest in today and in sort of, um, you know, modern <laughs> cultural values as opposed to like Lovecraft is a traditionalist, right? Not like he was like anti-modern. So what do you do if you are a modern person, but you're still interested in those moments of cosmic awe, cosmic scale terror and awe? And what would it really be like to encounter an immortal being that exists in more physical dimensions than three? So I think that's those kind of what ifs were interesting to me. And I think similar to some of these other writers of the new weird, uh, China Mieville, you know, I wanted to like pull some of those elements out and um, remove them from, you know, Lovecraft per song and this idea of like, oh, you're in the 1920s and you're an investigator, which you see in the Call of Cthulhu kind of games. And instead it's like, no, 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 it's hundred million years of the future. It's a game about space capitalism. But, you know, yeah, there <laughs> might be out there in the depths of space, hundred billion year old, uh, you know, or not, no, so that's older than the universe, but, you know, billion year old um, 
star-sized beings? And like, what would you do if you met one? You know what I mean? And I think that is something um, really interesting. And it, it creates a different kind of encounter from you meet sort of the humanoid-like alien or you meet the evil robot. You know what I mean? So these are sort of subgenres that one can play with. I want to drill down more specifically and talk about the uh, Migo astrobiologists. Because um, these are a Cthulhu kit monster in the quick start in the quick start guide. Can you thumbnail for me what these guys are? Yeah, yeah, and I should I should clarify, and this is not at all to be pedantic about my own game, but no, no, in the be game, pedantic about your game. <laughs> no Cthulhu one kit. We use as a specific term to mean like so powerful, so alien that they live in quote unquote another dimension or whatever. They they kind okay. of don't interact with time space normally. So the Miko are just aliens, but you're absolutely right. They're coming from the mythos of you know, which sort of comes from the Lovecraft circle. And many of those terms originated with earlier writers and were explored by later writers. So they're sort of passing through the filter of one kind of random racist asshole who happened to write sort of, the, again, a few stories that were so good that they've sort of lived on and, and been useful touchstones, even as people have debated the value of sort of his overall oeuvre and, and, you know, done other things with it. So Mingo is one of those concepts. Um, and the idea is just that they're aliens from, uh, you know, according to the original mythos, as I recall, they're from the planet Pluto, which they call Yugoth, and they are crab-shaped fungi, and they can fly. And that's kind of, <laughs> I think, all that we know. And they, they sort of um, they experiment on humans. They kind of pretend to be a human at one point, and it's very, it's very spooky and weird. Um, and you just, it's very different. They're not like out there stabbing people in the face. They're like scientists or something. And I liked that idea for this game. So they've been a kind of recurring villain in my campaigns and um, my co-designers games where... Um, you know, the Migo are, they, they evolved on Pluto. So what is Pluto? I mean, Pluto is a, a rock with dunes made of solid ammonia or something. I mean, it's just this terrifyingly cold um, sort of ice planet that's very, very, very small. And, uh, you know, if life evolved there, it'd be very different. So fungi, even in this sense, is like a metaphor. It's like they evolved from some sort of, uh, you know, thing that is very microscopic and can reproduce very differently than humans. And um, now they're vaguely crab shaped, but a lot of that might be a technology like biotech. So who knows what part is the original Migo and what part is sort of engineered. Um, but we represent them. Our artist, Ethan Gould, who's an amazing artist, um, has done some drawings and they look just terrifying, uh, you know, sort of hard to tell what's an organ again and what's maybe technical. Um, but yeah, we liked this idea. They're sort of scientists and they're co competitors with the company. So we wanted some aliens. Some of them. Yeah, you just they're space bad guys. Uh, they're evil robots, basically. Um, some of them are not at all sort of quote unquote evil. They're, they're you know, really um, interesting other civilizations you could encounter. And the Mingo are, are occupying an in-between position because they're not inherently um, evil per se. They just have a very different, you know, they, they're interested in humans and um, all the other sapient, you know, non-humans you can play in the game. Uh, but they have their own, they've evolved, uh, you know, sapients in a totally different way. And they have their own sort of code or ethics. And we actually explored that in a, in a little side um source book that we did as, as a zine for a, a jam on itch called you Gothi confidential where ethan and i went really deep into like what if you played amigo okay well to play amigo they have so many systems running at once they're so advanced and it's it's like a, a slime mold you know it's all these pieces that kind of flow together what if every player is just one part of the same Migo? so you're always playing one single Migo scientist who has many different routines operating and that would be very different than playing five pcs right five human or non-human characters in a space fantasy setting so that's that's kind of to give you a sense of how we think of it is like yeah that, i mean it would be like having you know five people um in this kind of weird crab body um and yeah so that's that that was kind of at the core of the design and it, it's just one of the sort of to us iconic 
quote unquote aliens, but really even those terms monster alien, we try to avoid. So we just call all the, the stat blocks in the book encounters. So there, there's something you could encounter and they have their own, you know, dogmas. They have their own codes basically by which they live. Among the powers and gear and story notes and attacks in this stat block, are there any that you feel specifically represent what you were going for or are a good example of that or ones that you just thought were really fun? Uh, yeah, I mean, we from the beginning knew that we need stat blocks. And so Eric Lazar, the, the designer of the book, played a big role in um, helping us think through and definitely playing with uh, with Ethan and, and many others, all our you know, play testers and, and patrons. Um, we have a pretty active Discord server. So if you want to play, please hop on there. We want to schedule more and more games. So that they helped us think like, where, how could we lay out basically, you know, combat movement, reason, will, charm for uh, encounters. And uh, I was always writing them with these little notes like gear, story notes. So sort of like what would they have on them that might be of interest? And then story notes just being a catch-all, like in a way, what do they look like when you first see them? Just kind of write on prose a couple sentences to give the GM a little more evocative language to go with, maybe something they could read out loud, right? Um, and then sometimes variants. So sometimes I'd write, you know, basically one or two bullets of like, ah, some of them have this stat instead of this, or they have this weapon instead of that, whatever. Um, so that that was kind of the basics. And what we found is that we felt it was lacking that sense of, for new GMs approaching really weird ideas, like what is the motivation? And to really make it an encounter and not a monster. And I, I liked um, what you said, because yeah, I mean, you, there's nothing wrong necessarily with playing a game that is about heroes slaying monsters, all in quotation marks. Um, but that's not this game. This game is about, you know, picaresque anti-heroes trying to figure out their lives within a political economy they find to be, you know, somewhat unjust. The picaresque is a literary tradition in early modern Europe, essentially tied with the birth of the novel. And remember that in the, the early modern, this transition from the medieval world with essentially swords to the early modern world of guns and being shot in the face, but also the transition from feudal nobility aristocracy to uh, the, the bourgeoisie, to capitalists owning everything. So D&D is kind of built on the picaresque, but it's it's an inversion because in D&D, it's trying to make the Picaro into a hero, whereas in the actual picaresque stories, like Don Quixote, if you're familiar at all with that trope, this old man who mm -hmm. wants to be a knight in the heroic era of like the Reconquistadora or whatever, but he's living in the early modern. So everyone's like, dude, there's no knights and Spain is already unified as a colonial power. Like, what do you want, man? Like, he's trying to save like maidens from monsters, but there's no monsters. No one wants his help. And his sidekick is this kind of idiot who, you know, so they, they're sort of just like getting into trouble while doing quote unquote adventures, but basically they're getting kicked out of inns and um, fighting non, like getting into fights for, for like bad reasons. That to me is very much like actually when you play D and D like the GM has some epic plot, but the, the yeah. Picaros, the heroes are just like, no man, we're just going to murder these goblins. Like, yeah, they're not even bad goblins. I just want their gold. And you're just like, ah, oh, why? Why do you do that? <laughs> so, uh, yes, in in our game, we're very much acknowledging like you're probably going to play in the picaresque tradition. Um, but you know, in this case, you subverting the, the adventure you're sent on is a good thing. It's a feature, not a flaw. So we, it's again, it, we we thought of that. <laughs> I don't, I think it works. <laughs> Up to you. I was actually really motivated there by. Um, looking around at other games that I like. So there's a cool OSR game called Troika. I don't know if you've played. The book I'm thinking of is Acid to Death Fantasy by Luke Gehring, which is a great book that has cool monsters in a sort of Dune-like um, psychedelic setting. And that was yeah, one yeah. where specifically Eric and I were reading it and thinking, oh, these encounters are really cool. We're not doing the same exact thing, but like we need to up our game encounter block-wise, right? That was when we decided, okay, we need to like really think about our encounters. And one of the things I like is their stat blocks, they have mean. So they, they just have sort of a list of like, what are these um, 
beings generally doing. Um, and so that's that's that oh, and the, the idea older of older usage of mean, as in yes. uh, you know, attitude or or general uh, posture and behavior. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So we we sort of were, were thinking about that. Eric and I were like, you know, what if we just basically had our version of of that? Like, what is this thing usually doing? And then the other piece, dogma, was was coming out of thinking about alignment and just, you know, I definitely don't want an alignment system. But I thought, okay, I could say, what's the motivation? If I bullet pointed one major motivation for this specific encounter, and maybe, you know, I could say in the story notes, well, there's many, many factions that have different, you know, ideologies, but this person cares about this. So it became a really fun game of kind of, in a way, speculative kind of like political fiction. So like each dogma tends to be these like weird terms where we're mashing up and we've had a lot of fun thinking through like what what are the motivations that aliens would have and how to represent that in English language that anyone could ever understand at all right, so even yeah. if it's weird yeah it has to like give you a hook somehow so um, you know for the Migo for the for this Migo group in the quick start we went with either obsessive empiricism so they're just kind of aliens who might want to dissect you just because they're really curious um, or data-driven real politics so they have some sort of Yugathi political conundrum and the data says you know they need to interact with you in some way steal your tech uh harm you maybe they need your help right and 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 so we're not saying gms here's exactly how to use it we're saying here's different things that this very different than human um being might care about and we're trying to give it sort of language that would um be evocative yeah just help a gm run an encounter um and then the habits part is you know similar to me and it's it's saying okay what are ways that you might come across this being um, and again just giving the GM stuff to work with so is it taking notes which is going to look very very different because it's evolved and uses this biotechnology and lives in hard vacuum so you know what it was to say um, it looks like surgery on a squealing blinking lion's mane mushroom so you know what I mean it's like holding a thing and doing a thing to it and what it's doing in its mind is taking notes on this biocomputer to you you're like oh my god are you killing a dog made of mushroom like what is that um, versus like maybe it's 3D printing a squiggly tool that will grow into a whole bubble shaped house. So it's like building something. And, and again, these are just evocative, like just moments the GM could completely discard, but they might help the GM say, oh, I know I'm just going to describe it as doing X. And, and we found that pretty, I found that useful in running games. And I feel like I've seen other GMs kind of pick up this idea of like these little imagistic, like what this thing might be doing when you meet it and, and, you know, they run with it. When a party of players have finished the encounter with a uh, Amigo astrobiologist, um, what do you want them to be thinking about or remembering a couple of weeks later? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I'm trying to think back to times I've used this kind of trope of monster, <laughs> this specific alien. Um, see, I just said monster. Uh, this, this specific encounter. And when uh, my, my friend Ethan, who's also the artist and also helps design the game, has used um, these. He had a whole campaign with Migo. I think one of the things I remember from playing in Ethan's campaign about the Migo was um, actually a lot of the encounters where we, there's one on Yugoth where we took the stiff works, the time space gates in the game that allow for, you know, instantaneous travel between worlds to Yugoth. And the whole time we didn't see a single Migo. We saw these sort of servitor, these like humans who'd been um, experimented on in the complex. We were in the scientific complex. And every time the Migo would be around the corner, kind of, they would be coming on their way. Like we would trip up the AI somehow, and then the Migo would, would come and we would leave. And that made this kind of constant cat and mouse feeling that was very much like a great sci-fi movie. And it allowed, Ethan's very funny. And so there were a lot of moments of humor, but when that would happen, when we would realize, oh shit, like the Migo is coming, the scientists are coming. 
it was really kind of terrifying because you're like, I don't think we're like first level or second level at that point. Like there's no way we're going to sort of defeat even one. We're, we're probably definitely not going to defeat like a small party of them. So um, it was almost their absence. And the fact that we knew they had intention, like they weren't random, right? They weren't like coming to kill us for uh, blood sport. You know, they were coming to experiment on us and turn us into essentially these fungal zombies we kept running into. Um, or, or there were just people sort of spaced out on like essentially drugs. And so it had this kind of vibe of like, almost like we're going to become a Manchurian candidate. And that was scarier than just fighting a random quote unquote monster. And I really liked how Ethan played it where there were very few actual Migo. And so at the end, when you finally like encounter them, it was like, it was such a big deal. And to know that it wasn't going to be a typical combat encounter, right? That they were actually trying to subvert the company. They were doing this whole sort of Manchurian candidate, um, you know, CIA kind of, kind of psyop. Um, and that was so much more fulfilling than like a big fight. So I would want people to take that away in general from the game that yes, you can always do combat in these games. Um, but there's so many other ways to have fun and to be true to the picaresque tradition, which Ethan and I are big fans of, which kind of gave rise to D and D in a way, the best parts are running away from fights. The best parts are losing fights, losing duels. I mean, that's what makes like Don Quixote or whatever. Great. It's, it's not an action movie. You know what I mean? It's, it's about a guy screwing up. So I think I would, I would say, you know, running away from Migo um, is perfectly valid and, um, you know, uh, may make you think about like, ah, do we want to sort of seek an alliance with them? Do we, you know, how do we sort of prove what they're up to? Um, and that's what I would want players to sort of talk about between sessions. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure is a part of this conversation? Um, I think it's just stuff you you probably cover in your other episodes more, which I, I've listened to some of, and I, I want to listen, go Thank back you. and listen to the whole catalog because I like the show. Um, but I think the idea of alterity and the role that designing others plays both at the level of like playable species or in D&D speak, quote unquote, races, mm -hmm. um, and how different can they be and what are the, the sort of bonuses or drawbacks and how does that essentialism um, get mechanicalized in a game? That is something that obviously... Um, many designers think a lot about, I thought a lot about Soulfleet. And the, the other piece is designing then um, antagonists or possible antagonists. So again, we call them encounters because you don't necessarily have to fight them per se, but we want to make, you know, if we, if we bother to stat block uh, an encounter, it's because that being might resist you in some way, right? You might not be rolling to, to hit them in combat, but you might be trying to charm them and they're rolling will to resist your charms or whatever, right? They're lying to you and you need to suss out the truth. So you're rolling will, et cetera. Um, and I think... Uh, in both cases, obviously, all game designers think about these things um, to, to various degrees and, and, and with various kind of ideologies of game design. Um, and with us, I think we've tried to make species that are interesting and different. And so there's a lot of interesting non-humans and you have that element of science fictionality. Um, but uh, they all have something in common. And then the aliens, the encounters we've allowed to push and make these much, 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 much sort of weirder. So you have, like, say, these Cthulhu kits who have D20s for stats. So in Still Fleet, you don't generally have a D20. So to fight something with a D20 is, like, a big deal. Um, ancient war machines, you know, what about, like, uh, AI that is essentially, you know, basically insane, right? Its logic boards no longer operate correctly, and it is wandering around um, just still fighting some war that has been over for 5,000 years. You know, that civilization is gone. Um, and I think those kinds of questions about how one would interact with them, what do they want, how could they be convinced, um, I, I think those are all ways of getting at essentially like really at the end of the day, human difference and they're creating, um, you know, safe, fun ways to, with your friends, explore questions we might all have about AI and about, um, 
how do we resolve all kinds of differences? Um, and at the end of the day, yeah, I think it's just more interesting to have them stack up to some kind of political discussion. Where do we want the company to go? What do we want our jobs to be? As opposed to merely repeating over and over again, the kind of uh, murder hobo, you know, algorithm of kill a thing, take its gold, kill a thing, take its gold, you know what I mean? And just kill bigger and bigger things. I think in a way, all ga- most games tend to stack in, in some direction, right? So D&D stacks in that, that direction, the murder hobo um, algorithm. And we're trying to create a stack where over time the encounters add up um, in whatever campaign you, you know, however you run Stillfleet towards some sort of deeper idea about your, your role in a broader society that is inhabited by not just humans, but all kinds of beings in, at this point in, 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 in time. So, um, yeah, I, I hope we've succeeded. I hope people give it a chance and, um, we'd love to hear, you know, obviously we like talking to people on discord and, and elsewhere about, you know, what they think and, and how they've used this. And, and again, I all credit, like so many of our players and GMs have come up with so many great ideas and really fun campaigns. Um, so it's no longer, it's, it's no longer just my baby. And, and I think that's a good thing personally, but I really want this to see, I know it already has, um, but I really want this to succeed in, in every way that it is possible for it to do, which, uh, I will abandon the pretense of journalistic impartiality here <laughs> because, uh, this thing is incredible. Thanks for listening to Making a Monster. Here's how to get Stillfleet at your table. So if you're interested in Stillfleet, uh, this is the perfect time. There's two days left, so you really should act like today if you're thinking <laughs> about it. Check out on Kickstarter uh, Stillfleet. You can go. It's it's under you know games, projects we love. Um, you can just look up Stillfleet, one word, uh, and you'll find it on Kickstarter. And that is the campaign for the core rulebook. So that's all the rules. Um, it's the book we've been working on for forever, and there's tons of other material. Some of it is out, a little bit is out. Most of it is going to come out after the Core World book. And actually, we decided to go ahead and do two books at once because we're just huge masochists that way as creators. So you can buy the Core World book as a PDF for print. You can also uh, pledge and, and, and you know basically pre-order um, as physical or digital um, a venture. So a playable scenario that's also a source book. It has lots of information on one world. Uh, and that is a uh, setting um, called The Rain Thieves um, by our friend and web developer Aaron H. Um, and a co-game designer and, and great person. Uh, and The Rain Thieves, uh, not only is this this venture, this this epic kind of ecological uh, political story, uh, it's also just a great source book if you want a really rich um, desert sci-fi planet. If you're interested in sort of themes from Dune, but, uh, you know, totally different, right? In the, in the Stilfy universe, um, uh, you know, check it out. It's got an intelligent uh, spider-like xenofauna um, of different kinds and a lot of weird uh, architects, so ancient technologies buried in the sands um, and uh, just, you know, some mysteries. Uh, so those are those are two books you can pledge for now. There, we also have tons of other um, items, you know, it, we have sort of merch stuff, you know, t- uh, t-shirts and <laughs> pins, which are really great. Eric Lazar is an amazing designer and we're showing off the art of Ethan Gould and the, the shirts. Um, but, you know, in addition to that, uh, we have a deck of reference cards. So 52 cards for GMs that have um, basically architect and encounters um, summarized. So for the encounters, it's not gonna be every single word in a full, because usually encounter blocks are about half a page or a full page. These are just gonna be the summaries with the stats and some quick thoughts. Um, And those are gonna be fun things with images that we would hope GMs could show players as they're playing the game. They could hand out architect, they could show you the the thing you're encountering. And if people like that, we can do more of it. But this is, you know, for us, we're kind of new to a lot of this. We've all printed stuff in the past. Um, We're all, it's the model of like Swift Trust. We're all good at like the one thing we do, but (laughs) we're a new company as Stillfleet. So 
um, you know, we hope you like it and we, we're really excited about the book. Um, most of all, just because it's been in development for a long time and we do hope people give the game a, a try. So again, you get the PDF and just, you know, um, check it out. The PDF will be out way before the physical book just due to, you know, printing. So that'll be much sooner. White, thank you so much for being a part of the show uh, and bringing this collection of the weird and the wonderful to the conversation. You've added quite a bit. I'm really excited for this to be a part of the canon. Um, thank you so much. I love the show. I love the idea. And I think it's important to, um, in some ways, I think go a little deeper as a community, but it's cool to think philosophically, like what makes a game fun or, or what makes it do certain things? What makes it have certain effects? So I love this idea of like, let's just drill down on one monster at a time. I think it's brilliant. Thank you. We'll be back next week and every week this fall with new episodes from creators I met at Gen Con, new stories from the Book of Extinction, and a few wild cards like Stillfleet. Hope to see you there.